You know, this familiar story that I was supposed to read, told in today's gospel reading, Jesus then, Peter walking on water is replete, just full of straightforward and practical lessons. And even if you read it casually, you could probably point most of them out. Among them are Jesus refusing to be distracted from the necessity of being with the Father in prayer in the midst of an incredibly dynamic season, rather than as prayer is a last desperate resort. You've probably heard me say this before, but like the, the woman who says to her husband in a stressful situation, maybe we should pray about it, and he says, oh no, has it come to that? So every time Lauren suggests we pray, I, that's my standard response. We have Peter in a bold and inspiring act of faith, stepping out of the boat, flailing and failing only when he lost focus, took his eyes and took his eyes off of Jesus. And of course, Jesus' presence, his mere presence, just calming the punishing headwinds. And the promise of the same for us. And all of these are helpful for framing the heart of a God whose desire is to be with us in prayer. For illustrating the power of stepping out in faith with our eyes fixed firmly on Christ. And for the promise of Jesus' presence and power with us in the midst of our own adversities. There they're all there in this story of an angry sea, and they're all valuable takeaways. But if you read, pardon the pun, just a bit deeper, this passage also has a rich and vivid subtext that has some immediate and candidly demanding implications for us as we live out our day-to-day -day lives. And that's what I'd like to give focus to this morning. But first, some context. This story is paralleled in Mark and John. Luke does not include it. And what Matthew, Mark, and John all say is that after feeding a hungry crowd, maybe 15 to 20,000 people total, Jesus sent his disciples away. Matthew, though, says he made them get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of the lake. And at first, the word made it, which is really, really emphatic in Greek. Sounds harsh, but there are some good reasons for it. Jesus and the disciples are in the midst of an incredibly dynamic and stressful time of ministry, and during that time, he just learned that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been murdered by Herod. So he withdrew from the crowds pressing in on him. Matthew tells the story beginning in verse 13 that when he heard what had happened, he withdrew to a boat and, and the, the disciples, as, as I read, they come to him and say, hey, it's late. Give these people something to eat. And he says, you give them something to eat, which is kind of a topic for another sermon if you think about it. They reply, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, and bearing in mind that Jesus is fully human and susceptible to exhaustion and fatigue, just like you and me. You can almost hear the sigh. 
Bring them here to me. Another task. And he fed them. But singularly, the Apostle John lets us see another, perhaps more likely reason for his emphaticness. John tells us in chapter 6, verse 15, that immediately after feeding the crowd that afternoon, Jesus perceived that they wanted to take him by force and make him king. There had been a huge surge of kind of populist support for Jesus. And in the powder keg that was Israel at the time, the beginnings of a violent revolution were entirely plausible in that moment. It was a potentially dangerous situation, and the disciples may well have exacerbated it because despite all that they'd seen and experienced of Jesus, they were still thinking of him primarily, if not exclusively, in terms of earthly and political power. He needs them gone. And when he was finally alone and evening had fallen, he did exactly what he'd escaped to that side of the lake that morning to do. He went up to a mountain to pray. And and in the darkness, as the disciples are, are moving across the lake, one of the sudden squalls for which the lake was notorious came up. The disciples are genuinely struggling against the wind and the waves, making painfully slow progress. Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus appears to the disciples in the boat during the fourth watch, which is sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. Now remember, they had left before evening fell. So they'd been at this for a long time. And according to John, they've made it less than halfway across the lake, maybe three miles. And they are bone tired. What's unique about Matthew and not found in Mark and John are the dialogue with Peter and Peter's go at stepping out of the boat and walking on the water to Jesus. Like the other disciples, Peter's panicked by this figure walking toward them on the water in the middle of the night as you would be. And even after Jesus calls out to the disciple, they're still not sure it's him. But Peter, given to acting on impulse without stopping to think about what he was doing, a mistake he would make over and over and over again, blurts out in verse 28, Lord, if it's you, command me, and I will walk to you on the water. Peter was, I'm guessing, an Enneagram 7, the enthusiast. So when Jesus bids him come, Peter wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, and without necessarily deliberating the consequences, our middle son is a seven, so Warren and I have firsthand experience with all three of those things. He steps out of the boat. Having embarked in faith, though, he loses focus, becomes frightened and and founders, and in his panic, ultimately calls to Jesus, who lifts him and returns him safely to the boat. And there's one of those straightforward and practical lessons from this passage. And I'm sure you've heard it before. Like like Peter, we're also called to step out in faith, even in the midst of raging waters, if we're to be faithful to the call of Christ. But stepping out in faith isn't a guarantee that we won't face our own raging waters or sometimes be panicked by fear. But it's always always accompanied 
by the assurance that Christ will never abandon us, that when we need him, he will extend his mighty arm to lift us to safety. That's wonderful and true and ought to give us comfort, but there's more to this story than that. In fact, the Christological subtext of this passage is ginormous. And we can see it in at least two ways. The first one is this in verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Before Jesus arrives, the disciples' situation in the boat is perilous, though presumably not unfamiliar, at least to the fishermen among them. They presumably struggled against storms many times before. It's the appearance of Jesus walking on the sea and not the storm that terrifies them. They're pretty sure this shadow coming toward them in the darkness is, it says in verse 26, a ghost. And the language in Greek here is that of being a malevolent, malevolent apparition. App, apparition. I can't even read my own writing. And he's there to do them harm. According to the parallel passage in John, even when they recognize him, they're still terrified. This may be, well be Jesus approaching, but Jesus, as they'd never seen or known or understood him before. I mean, who does that? The answer suggested by Matthew is incredibly disruptive to those who think of Jesus as just a really great moral guy who occasionally pulled off the odd sleight of hand to make a point. Because in, in Hebrew thought, and remember, Matthew is writing to primarily Jewish readers. Water represents much more than a mere physical reality as it does to us today. Whether it's the sea with its unfathomable depths, the relentless river in flood, or the all-consuming deluge, there's something dark and spiritual about the power of water over human life. Theologian Karl Barth wrote that water in the creation story is the principle which in its abundance and power is absolutely opposed to God's creation. It is also a representative of all the evil powers which oppress and resist the salvation intended for the people of God. Darkness, it says in Genesis 1-2, was over the face of the deep. Throughout the Old Testament, it's precisely this reality over which God's lordship is continuously, continuously demonstrated and God's victory is affirmed. Genesis, in Genesis 1, in the spirit of God ho hovering over the waters and ordering the world out of chaos. In Genesis 9, in God's covenant with Noah after the flood. In Exodus 14, in the deliverance from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. In Joshua 3, the miraculous entry into the promised land through the rain-swollen Jordan River. And of course, as we read today, in the story of the prophet Jonah. Water, water, water. And the Lord God triumphs over it and delivers through it. That's a big part of our baptismal liturgy, by the way triumph of God through the waters. The God of Israel tramples the waves, it says in Habakkuk 3.15. And in Job 38.16, he says, he walks 
in the recesses of the deep. These are very specific signs of God's sovereign and transcendent power over all that would threaten his purposes. Psalm 93, 4 says, Mightier than thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And we, we read in Psalm 29 today, it is the Lord that commands the waters. So when Jesus approaches the disciples in their boat as they battle the wind and waves, the, the, the prospect is naturally terrifying. Who but God can walk here with such authority and freedom? The implications of this act are unmistakable to the disciples and something they would never forget. Jesus is exercising power that belongs to God alone. And when he speaks, his words make this implicit revelation explicit. In verse 27, he says to the disciples who are rightfully terrified at Jesus' dominion over the water, take heart, it is I. Which is kind of a grammatically awkward way to say that, isn't it? But that's literally what he says in two Greek words. I me ego, which translate to three in English. It is I. It may sound awkward to us, but for Jews in the first century, that little phrase was freighted with all kinds of theological significance. Here's why. The common Greek translation of the Old Testament at the time, the one with which everyone would have been familiar, was the Septuagint. And this is the exact phrase the Septuagint uses to translate the Hebrew name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush when Moses tells God he can't go to Pharaoh because he doesn't know his name. This is God's reply to him in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And, God, and he said, say to them, I am has sent me to you. Do you see what Jesus has done? This is, as I said, ginormous and blasphemous if not true he's saying to them take heart I am he's using God's own holy and by the way never uttered name to announce himself I am is here in these two charged words and the incredible drama playing out here, Jesus is identifying himself as God, the liberator and redeemer of Israel, who is at the same time the creator of the world and the victor over chaos. The words that follow then, do not be afraid, assure the disciples that this awesome, and I do not use this word lightly. I've tried to extricate the word awesome almost entirely from my vocabulary because when you say it, where do you go from there? I mean, go to a child's soccer game and you hear awesome, awesome, awesome all the time. And it's like he just kicked the ball. That's all he did. Where do you go from there? I mean, is it all caps after that? Is it all exclamation points? I don't know. But I digress. And that's a particular rant of mine. <laughs> But that phrase, do not be afraid, assures the disciples that this awesome, 
revelation in the midst of the storm is good news. The same phrase is used all over scriptures where God, God's self-revelation is always accompanied by the injunction, do not be afraid. Given its utterance at critically important moments and especially in the birth and resurrection of Jesus, do not be afraid is a keynote of the gospel itself. The revelation of God isn't intended to terrorize or diminish, but to save, uphold, and transform. And then, as if to put an exclamation point on the whole thing, immediately upon entering the boat, the wind and the waves that had caused the disciples such distress and exhaustion, apparently without any kind of command or fanfare, simply ceases. So Jesus' revelation in the storm absolutely contains a message of comfort and grace and mercy. But in the, the Bible, authentic revelation is never, ever academic or self-indulgent. There's always a personal cost to be paid when God reveals himself. A summons to faith to be heard and answered. Revelation is intended always to take the form of transformation. And that's exactly what we see in the disciples here. I should say revelation to the people of God is intended to take the form of transformation. And that's exactly what we see in the disciples here. The climax of this story isn't Jesus or even Peter walking on the water or Jesus saving Peter or even stilling the sea. The climax of this story is the confession of the disciples. This is one of those moments like the transfiguration where the disciples gain transformational revelation and insight into Jesus' identity and mission. The whole event leads up to this one thing in verse 33. Truly, you are the Son of God. What's significant is this is the very first time Jesus has been addressed by the disciples with his full title. And in Matthew, it's the only time the disciples use it. So this is a high point. And it would be great to end this story with that powerful confession. Jesus reveals himself mightily to the disciples and everything changes. They're immediately and completely transformed. Go thou and do likewise. Amen. But the niggly thing is... Exactly what the disciples mean by son of God isn't really all that clear. Every commentator I read says it's very doubtful that at this point they truly understood that title and wouldn't until after the resurrection and the ascension. They likely used it with only kind of a superficial comprehension. This is illustrated by their ongoing and repeated misunderstandings of Jesus' true identity and mission that follow this revelation. After all this, they still get it wrong. And that's actually one of the things I really love about the Gospels. They never, ever try to cover that up. They're just very straightforward and candid about portraying the disciples coming to understand the lordship of Christ only by degree. They were slow and incremental learners. 
In fact, one of the best examples of the gospel writer's candor and authenticity lies precisely in that, that they show the disciples coming around to the same points over and over and over again, each time with just a slightly deep, deeper level of comprehension. By the way, does that sound familiar to anyone here? But always with a mixture of misapprehension, too. No gloss, no cover-up, three steps forward, two steps back. And that ought to give us incredible hope. No pun intended. Oh, who am I kidding? This pun is totally intended. But it puts us in the same boat as the disciples. I can't speak for all of you, but this is my reality. My reality is that of a very slow and incremental learner. In much of the evangelical world, however, we've believed the idea that fundamental life transformation should somehow be immediate and comprehensive. But this fits neither scripture nor neuroscience. We're often led to making emotional commitments of radical life change, only to get mired in the incredibly hard work that is actual life change. We come to Jesus with a lifetime of baggage and bad habits. And the reality is that even with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, shedding and changing these things takes desire and intention and discipline and prayer and failure and repentance and time. This isn't to say that the Holy Spirit cannot miraculously transform a person immediately and comprehensively. He can. But for everyone I know, including myself, lasting spiritual transformation, or what we call sanctification, is hard work over time. And it happens only by degrees. As it did with the first disciples. Even for them, progress was sometimes excruciatingly slow, but it was progress. The Gospels don't shy away from this reality, and painfully frustrating as it might at times in our own, be in our own pursuit of being formed into the image of Christ, which we discovered in Romans 8 a couple of weeks ago, is God's will for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We shouldn't shy away from that either. And so Jesus tells the disciples here, and he tells us, Take heart. Be patient. Keep at the hard work of sanctification, even if the progress is slow. Don't give up. Don't quit. Grace is, after all, opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. God is not finished, and he wants to, us to join him in that work. He does, and he will consistently bring us opportunities for being better formed into the image of Jesus. This is, gonna, and this is gonna sound like a shameless plug, and I suppose it is. But I have found and am finding that this happens most profoundly within a community of people who are committed to the same thing. This is one of the reasons we would like everyone in our church to become part of a home group this fall, because our desire is that through that experience, those 12 weeks beginning after Labor Day, that we would be better formed into the image of Jesus, and we would be doing it together. There's a survey. 
um, in your bulletin that I'd love for you to fill out and put in the offering plate. Jim, the good news is the offering plate will be full today. And uh, <laughs> listen, he who began a good work in us wills to bring it to completion as he did with those first disciples, the ones who got out of the boat eventually and turned the world upside down. And even though it's there, just below the surface, final pun, I think that may be one of the most valuable lessons that we can draw from this story. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>